we're glad to be sharing the ministry of Redemption Church with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. thankful for each and every one of you. I hope your new year is going well. Is your new year going well? Our poor Dallas Cowboys met their demise in the NFL playoffs last week. We are all trying to get over the fact that our team actually ran the clock out on themselves while being in scoring position. But anyway, everyone cheer up because next year's our year. I'm saying it right now. For the 27th year in the row, next year's our year. Eventually. All right. Go, Cowboys. While our Super Bowl dreams may have ended, we are still very much in the middle of our first things first series. We're still striving for a championship in this series. We're still pressing right ahead. We are taking a look at the book of Ezra. And that's a new thing for many people. Most people like Ezra who... Who is that? That is a book in your Old Testament. It's a powerful one. And the story of Ezra features a return to a city to a rebuild effort. A city that had completely fallen apart. And they returned to this mess of a city in hopes to rebuild it. To hopes uh, maybe make something beautiful out of what is wreckage. We think the storyline fits really uh, well with our new year where we are setting out to rebuild broken things in our lives. So that first week we talked about, what did they build first? Somebody help me, what did they build first? They built an altar first. They built an altar and they kept coming back to that altar. The altar is a meeting place with God. And before today is over, we want you to have the opportunity. We're going to give you an opportunity to have a meeting place with God. Do not just come to church Come meet with God. Build an altar first. Week two, uh, they built a foundation first. We talked about the importance of a foundation. We talked about how a foundation defines the fate of a building. Remember that altars are easy to build. In fact, they cost you very little to build an altar. But foundations, they will cost you. Foundations take time. Foundations take money. Foundations take energy. But they are worth it. A foundation will ensure that what you build will last. The people in Ezra 3 were moved to worship when the foundation was laid. And there's this amazing picture of worship happening. Tears and shouts of joy. And they were so loud and present at the, at the laying of the foundation that you couldn't even distinguish what was a cry and what was joy. It just all came together, they worshiped, they sang, they shouted, they wept. It was a loud commotion and a celebration. I want to tell you, build a foundation first and then rejoice that the foundation is laid. The project doesn't have to be completed for you to start worshiping, for you to start thanking God. You can start thanking him right now in the early days of this work. All right, so. What's this picture we have of Israel? Israel's on a roll. Somebody say they're on a roll. My goodness. They have some real momentum behind them. They are set free from exiled slavery. It's a big deal, right? They are back in their own homeland, which was promised to them by God to Abraham. Big deal, right? In good standing with God for the first time in a long time because they built an altar to God. That's a big deal. Somebody say a big deal. And the foundation is laid for the temple of God to be rebuilt. They are on a roll. They're getting things done. 
things were going better than they had gone for generations. In fact, there are people that didn't think it could ever be this way again. And here it is day after day. Israel is gaining stride and and having victory on every front. So what would be the next exciting thing they would accomplish? Think about this. All all that they have done, they're free, they're building, they've got everything, they've got God behind them and every possibility in front of them. What would be this next first thing that they'd accomplish? I'm so excited to tell you. Let's read it. It's in Ezra chapter 4. We're just turning the page to the next chapter to find the next thing. Here it is. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. Wait, that can't be right. What are those first words there? When the, the enemies, the enemies, what was the next Big thing for them, it was their enemies. I I want you to notice this. Were they doing good? Yeah, they were doing good. Were they honoring, obeying God? Yeah, they were. Were they making good decisions? Yeah, they were. Were they accomplishing goal after goal? Yeah, they were. And what is the reward for all these good deeds? Their enemies heard about it. And they showed up. You ever feel that way? Yeah, God, I've been doing good. God, you know I've been making decisions. God, you know I wanted to go to that all-you-can-eat buffet, but I did not. Oh, God, there was, this, there was this thing I really wanted to do, but I wasn't supposed to do, but I said no to it, right? God, I've been, I've been seeing some accomplishments. God, I've been giving. God, I've been praying. God, you, I have, I've been going to church. God, I've been opening my Bible. God, I've actually reading through my Bible this year. I'm doing all of these things, but what shows up at my door? I want an angel to show up at my door with a big bag of golden money from heaven and be like, well done, Rick. Here is golden money from heaven. I wanted it to be that, but what is at the door might be an enemy. And I said this to God many times. Why do enemies show up when I'm doing good? Why do enemies show up when I'm walking the right way? Why do these bad things happen? I want to tell you today. I need to tell you today. Opposition is coming. Somebody say opposition is coming. You need to know it's on its way. It's on its way. In fact, at some point this year, you're going to face difficulty. I don't have to be a prophet to tell you that. I don't need an angel to whisper in my ear that, that very thing. No, so at some point, while you are trying to serve God and do the right thing and be the good husband and be the good parent and be the good coworker, while you are trying to do those things, you are going to run face to face with an enemy. At some point, your marriage or family life, you're going to face a stressful time. At some point in your finances, in your career, or in your spiritual life, you're going to come face to face with a giant. Often we think opposition means that we have done wrong. Y'all think about that for a second. I think you'll find that that's true. Usually a problem has shown up and you're like, God, I must have done something wrong to deserve this problem. I must have done something wrong. And this is your way of punishing me. That is why the 49ers beat my Dallas Cowboys. I'm I'm sure of it. Logically, it kind of makes sense to think this way, right? I, I get it. I get it. If you reap what you sow and suddenly you are reaping opposition, it must mean that you have sown some bad things. There, I even use the scripture to kind of logically get around this. Let me tell you, there's, this is not a logic thing. This is not a logic thing. But I, I've, I've had many conversations like this, if I can be honest with you, uh, transparent. I have car trouble. And I go, there it is. God, you must be punishing me. It can't possibly be that those tires are four years old and have just been driving constantly. No, it's got to be that I've done something wrong. I am sick. Oh, my goodness, it could, with COVID, right? If you've gotten COVID, you've gotten what I would call a COVID shame. Anybody feel the COVID shame that, that's had it? You ever feel like, 
I did it. I, I went in and had COVID. I must, uh, it must be because I've done something wrong, right? Even though I'm not sure what it is. You ever feel that way? God, I, I'm, God I've done something wrong, obviously. I don't know what it even is, but it must be something. Let's speak to this really quickly. I want to try to help you today. This is bad theology. These are bad thoughts on God. These are not correct thoughts to be thinking about God and his view of you. This is the theology that's actually presented in the book of Job, which is one of the most difficult books to get into. This week, I got through it on my scripture reading, and I was so excited to finally get through the book of Job because it's very little God talking, and then it's a bunch of people that have no idea what's happening, but that doesn't keep them from talking. That's the whole book of Job. It's maddening. It's maddening. But Job's friends tell Job that all the calamity, all the bad things that are happening in Job's life, it's happening as a direct result to some unknown evil that he has done. And Job's like, I don't know what evil thing I've done. They said, oh, you're adding lying to it, you prideful man. And it's like, leave the dudes alone. He's been through enough. That's the book of Job. They tell Job the opposition he faces is caused by his own failures, his own shortcomings. And ultimately, they arrive at the false conclusion that God, everyone say God, they believe that God has brought terrible judgment upon God. But if you read that book, you know it wasn't God that had done it. It was an enemy, an unknown enemy. And you've all got one. If I, I've met some people, some, you know, when I preach on me, I've had people, sweet people, they come up and say, Pastor Chris, I just want, you know, I don't have any enemies. I'm like, oh, you sweet summer child, you blessed little thing. You just don't even know. You have enemies you don't know about. You have opposition in every face of the planet, right? The, the key to being a Christian is not having, it, it, it is not having a lack of enemies, but it's loving your enemies. That's the key to Christianity. So those people, that is hard. Amen, Will, that is hard. So Job's friends, they're wrong. And God himself tells them that they're wrong. And those conclusions are still wrong today. I want to give you this very crucial piece of information. God is not passive aggressive. Right. You know what it means to be passive aggressive? Husbands, do not raise your hands. This is not the time to raise your hands. Say, I know, Pastor Chris, I have no idea what that is. No clue what that is. I love you, sweet Sarah. Ever have a passive aggressive argument with, with someone? Uh, they, they would say things, uh, certain things, and they would give these looks, and they would uh, communicate cryptically mysteriously to let you know something was wrong. It would perhaps be subtle, but you could, if you were paying attention, pick up on it. Yet, although you knew something was wrong because someone sighed while they were cooking your bacon, (sighs) you heard that. You're like, something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong. And, you know, you would hear Cabinets maybe close a little, just a slight decibel louder than you normally would. Just grab. You're like, oh, whoa, whoa, we need to get some stoppers on that that help calm down that noise. You, you just pick up on certain little looks or maybe a lack of looks, right? You ever pick up that one? You're at a table and you're like, you're looking up and they are not looking at you. You are not. And it's like, oh my gosh, what is it that they're looking at? And you're, you're, you're a dumb dude like me. That this things that happen. Although you know something's wrong, you aren't always sure what's wrong. At times, it will even cause you to ask the worst thing. Do not ask this one. Here it is. Did I do something wrong? Don't do it. What you should do is you should go get an Old Testament model and get sackcloth and ashes and just start repenting. And make things right, right there. Because you did do something wrong. All right. That's just for somebody else. And if you ask, did I do something wrong? They respond with the strange, ominous, it's fine. And you know something is wrong 
when you hear it's fine. You know of all the things it is not fine. You don't know what's wrong, but you do know it is not fine. This is the world of passive-aggressive communication. It's not really communicating. It's communicating passively, yet somehow aggressively. You put it together, it's passive-aggressive. I want to tell you this incorrect theology, that opposition means you've done something wrong. It usually brings brings us to the place where we know something is wrong, but we don't know exactly what it is. It puts us in that exact place where passive aggressiveness uh, takes us. God is not passive aggressive. God is not just slamming doors a little bit harder and letting you guess that something is wrong. When you are doing wrong, God tells you directly. He's not afraid to tell you directly. He is the Lord of glory. He is true in all things and he will tell you directly. He speaks to you. He will send other people to speak to you. He will talk to your pastor sometimes and your pastor will preach things and you'll go, oh my gosh, how in the world is he preaching that right now? It's because the Lord is speaking to you directly. Not in a passive-aggressive nature. He knows how to get your attention. He sends warnings. And he, and he he knows how to speak to you and hit you in all of your five senses plus a sixth one, your soul. And he knows how to hit every single one of those and sometimes all at the same time. Because God does not want to leave you wondering. So stop thinking the opposition in God's, is God's passive-aggressive way of punishing you. Oh, God, what's wrong? And God's like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. No, God, it's not that way. God will tell you if what you're doing is wrong. And Jesus tells us this about trouble. He says this in John 16, I have told you these things. So that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Somebody said that word trouble. Did Jesus say it? Must be true, right? But take heart. I have overcome the world. Everybody, trouble's coming. Jesus himself said it. All right? He, he, if you're coming to the conclusion I have trouble, that must mean I'm not doing right. No, You have trouble, even though Jesus Christ has overcome the world, you'll still have trouble. Someone say opposition is coming. Jesus says opposition is coming, yet a world of opposition should not steal your peace. You should have peace. You should take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome the world and all the problems that are in it, all the trouble that is in it, All of the disease of the world, he's overcome it. All of the anger of the world, all of the problems of the world, Jesus Christ has already overcome it. So take heart. Now, Jesus does not say in this world, you will have trouble because of the evil you have done. Did anyone see that in John 16, 33? Neither did I. He doesn't say you will have trouble because you are a no good sinner. Even though we are no good sinners. But that's not the reason why there's trouble. No, Jesus is speaking to disciples who have done good, were trying to do good, and would yet continue to do good. But still, even then, opposition would come to every one of them. Very hard opposition. Opposition that makes us look like we're living on easy street, let me tell you. I want to tell you opposition is a part of life. Do not think an an opposition uh, free life is the sign that you're doing good. That was not the case anywhere in your Bible. Expect to face opposition this week. Do not be caught off guard by difficulty. Because this is the next first for you. You need to face your opposition first. They built that altar. They laid that foundation. Now it was time for them to face an opponent. Since opposition is coming, you must face your opposition first. 
You have a city to rebuild. Whatever it is that you need to rebuild, it's right in front of you. You have a life to rebuild. Your, your opposition will try to stand right in your way. You, you must face your opposition first or you will never see the life that you want to see. Your opposition is sneaky though, right? Y'all know this? Yeah, this, is, this should get an amen from everyone. I'm, I'm going to try it one more time. Your opposition is sneaky. Yeah, that enemy on the job, you know that one, they're sneaky, right? That enemy that lives next door to you in your neighborhood, they be sneaky, right? They they aren't just bad and against you, they're sneaky about it. Watch what Israel's opposition does in the very next verse. Ezra chapter 4 verse 2, verse 1 calls them enemies number 2. It says this, they came to Zerubbabel, to the heads of the families, and said, let us... Help you. Let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esaradon, king of Assyria, Assyria, who brought us here. Let us help you build. Now, who wouldn't want help? Help's a good thing, right? My goodness, some of us go, man, Lord, if only I had some help. We say that to the Lord. Oh, if only someone would call me up right now and offer to help me. Oh, well, you be, be careful. Be careful. They asked to help. Let me help you build. What else do they say? They say, we seek your God. Well, praise the Lord. How wonderful is that? Not only do they want to help, but they want to, they seek the same God that I do. Wow, you could just Think what a miracle this is, brothers and sisters in the Lord. You might be thinking that. I want to tell you, though, your opposition can appear friendly. Say those words. Your opposition can appear friendly. Beware the enemy that says they want to help you. The truth is they did not want to help. Can you, hopefully you'll see that in this scripture. They did not want to help. The truth is they did not worship the God of Israel only. Add that word only. They may have given sacrifice to the God of Israel, but they also sacrificed to other gods. And perhaps they sacrificed to the God of Israel, but he was just one of the many gods that they sacrificed. They just ran uh, through all the, all the many gods out there and they worshiped all of them. And they said, hey, we have this one God in common, so let us help you build a temple to that God of Israel. Notice the timing of the opposition. You got to pay attention to timing. They show up in Ezra 4. Somebody remind me what happens in Ezra 3. Israel laid the foundation in Ezra chapter 3. And it's after they've done that work. That an opposition shows up pretending to be friends. It says, let us help you. They did not show up in Ezra 3. They showed up in Ezra 4. Are you following me yet? What am I saying? The foundation's a lot of work. We talked about that last week. They did not come to help with any of that work. Right? There was a lot of sweat labor in that work. They did not come for that work. Foundations cost. And they had to buy cedars from Lebanon and they had to to build all of these things and buy all these and purchase all of this material in order to build and uh, the, the foundation and all of Israel came together and they gave up a great offering. I don't see these people showing up then when it cost they weren't there. If someone really has come to help you, why didn't they come when we were raising funds for the project, they weren't there to do the work, and they weren't there definitely when the offering hat was being pa- passed around. If someone really has come to help you, they will get their hands dirty. We've all seen uh, it's almost like a, a joke ar- around guys. You've got a guy working in in the back of his garage, and he's got saws out he's got hammers he's got the drill he's got everything around and then one by one guys will show up with the can in their hand they'll be drinking out of it and they go oh that's really good stuff you know the best kind of tools you can ever get and they'll, they'll just talk about all these tools and only one guy's working 
but they're all there. It's a little bit like that. If people really have come to help, they'll actually put down their can and pick up a hammer. These people showed up after all the hard work had been done, and then they timed perfectly, hey, we want to help. That's what happened reading on verse 3 of Ezra 4. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in the building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. I want you to understand this. After a foundation is laid, after all of that hard work that is done and all that cost, you can't just let anyone build on top of your foundation. Whereas you will get very little help in building that foundation, you'll be surprised who will show up to try to build on top of your foundation for you. Or to to try to control what you build on top of your foundation. It will happen. Had they agreed to let these people help, they would have brought their false gods into that temple. They would have slowed down the work that needed to be done by arguing. The people that had not laid the foundation would have built a different work than what was imagined in the hearts of those people for a holy God. Don't let just anyone build upon Your foundation. You paid for that foundation. You spent years on that foundation. Now it is time for you alone to build on that foundation. We'll go a little further. All right. Husband and wife, you've worked really hard on that foundation. And let me tell you, there's all kinds of people and especially family, extended family that will try to come and build on that foundation for you. Don't let them, don't let them. That is for you and your wife. You can get in serious trouble letting a mother-in-law come in and build on the foundation that a man and his wife are supposed to build on themselves. Everybody in the world has something to say about how you're raising your kids. But listen, that is your foundation to build on. And you can't let just anybody come and start building on your foundation. Listen, Redemption Church, there are wonderful churches everywhere, but God has laid this foundation on us. He has put this vision to be this kind of church everywhere. And And everywhere there are people that have a different word about how we should do church. And that is fine and dandy. Let them go build their foundation. This foundation was given to us by God. And we alone are to build on it. There will always be people who will show up to spend your money. Have you ever noticed that? Oh yeah, that got some amens. How about people that will show up to spend your time? Right? Yeah, yeah. How about people that will show up to exploit your talents? Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll do that really quick. If you have a pickup truck, you will have so many friends, and they'll all need to move. Yes, we know this, right? Be careful, because these people might not really be your friends. You got to be careful. Be careful. Israel said, you have no part with us building a temple to God. Sometimes you need to tell people, you have no part in this. You don't have to be ugly. You don't have to be a jerk face. You don't have to cuss at them. You don't have to play the pride card. But no, this is what you've built. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. You've done the work. This is your place for you to say, you have no part in building this. You're safeguarding your future is what you're doing there. You're safeguarding your future. You're safeguarding all the work you've put in the past. Some people are part of your opposition and you must face your opposition first. Israel, they had been slaves for how many years in exile? 70 years. And in this moment, they made a stand and they faced their opposition. They had spent 70 years where they could not stand up 
and say, you have no part in this. No, because there was a slave master over them that, that would tell them otherwise. They had no freedom to say this. But now, now after a lot of promises of God coming true, now after a lot of work being done, now they are in a position where their work is in front of them and they say the words, you have no part in what we're doing. They said, we will be making our own decisions on this temple. And they should. This is what we have decided to do for God. And they should have said those things. They faced the opposition and started building the temple for God. Verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. It's verse 4. The people around them, these are the same enemies that showed up in verse 1. So in case you were like, Pastor Chris, we're probably being too hard on these people. Verse 4. They showed up to discourage. When they couldn't control the work, they decided to discourage the work. Verse 5, they hired, wait a second, what do you think they used to hire? Money, somebody say money. Now where were they in Ezra 3? We could have used some of that money in purchasing the foundation, right? No, they didn't show up then, but after they didn't hear what they wanted to hear, they hired, they hired, they went on to Indeed.com and they said, we're looking for people that will work against the, the people of Israel. And they had people sign up for it. They sent in their resumes. They said, oh, wow, look at this resume. You are hired. None of that's true. Just musing, just having fun. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now we're talking to a king's administrations, right? I don't know how long they were king. It's probably more than four-year terms like we have in the presidency, right? So we're talking maybe decades here of working against this work. Verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, so now we got a third king. They lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So these enemies that showed up in Ezra 4 verse 1. They approached Israel as friends after the hard work had been done. When they were not allowed to control the project. These enemies began to show their real motives. They wanted to stop the building of Israel. They did not want to help Israel build. They actually wanted to control and bring it to a complete halt. They discouraged the people. They tried to create fear. They hired counselors. They attempted to frustrate the plans. Finally, because none of that stopped Israel, they decided to do a little tattletale. Everybody say tattletale. Tattletale. My gosh, they, they tattletaled. They lodged a false accusation to the king of Persia against Israel. Are these friends? No. But they sure walked up and said, hey, friend, telling you you got to face your opposition and you got to have some wisdom in you and you need to be able to tell the difference between an opposition and a true friend. I have a saying we say every school day at, in, as we're driving to school, we say these words. It's a scripture. A friend loves at all times. Can you say that with me? A friend loves at all times. Oh, you want to know what a friend is? A friend loves and they love at all time. A friend loves when things are tough. A friend loves when you're in exile in a foreign land. A friend loves when it's going to take hard work. A friend loves when, even when they can't control everything. They, they surrender to you and say, friend, I'm here for you. I will love you at all times. A friend loves at all times. I'm telling you, these are not friends. They're not loving in the least. I want to tell you kind of friends. Have you ever had frenemies? 
kind of friends. They're just kind of friends. Well, we're kind of friends. I want to tell you, kind of friends do not exist. You can't kind of be friends. You are either for or you are against. There is no middle ground. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is kind of for me. No, if you are not with me, you are against me. And who who does not gather with me scatters. Lord, help us to discern who is for us and who is against us. And the secret is to know God is for you. God is for you. No greater friend than this. No greater love has a man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. Can I just tell you something real quick? Can I tell you something about Chris Fluitt? Chris Fluitt will not always be the friend that you need. He will not always live up to loving you at all times. He will not always come through for you. But God will. Jesus Christ will. He is truly your friend. And above all, you need to discern that he is for you. Here is the letter they sent to Xerxes. Now we're going to skip down to verse 12. Ezra chapter 4 verse 12. The king should know. So this is the words of the tattletale. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. That's what they said. They are restoring the walls and they are repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know, this is all for your help, king. We're just, we want to be friends to you, right? The king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Verse 14, now since we are under obligation to the palace, we're your real friends And it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored. We are sending this message to inform the king. We really don't want to tell you this, king. But we love you so much. We just want you to know that these people, they're just the worst. That's the story. That's the letter. Isn't that great? The king read this. And he wrote back. Verse 21. Now issue an order to these men to stop. So that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. It came to a standstill. It looked at this moment like the opposition had won. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. They pulled a power play. Israel was forced to stop their progress. Israel had accomplished so much. They had an altar. They had a foundation. But they might never have a completed city. Those families there might never have a place to live. They may not ever have a temple there to worship the Lord. They may never have uh, walls for that city to protect them. Don't you hate it when it looks like you're going to lose? Hate that. Hate it. Don't you just hate it when it looks like your opposition is over there smiling because they know you're going to lose? You hate that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somewhere in your life right now, there is opposition. In your school or your job, someone might be trying to discourage you, frighten you, control you, frustrate you. And sometimes it looks like absolutely your opposition is going to win. And this is where most people make a huge mistake. Here's what they do. Some give up completely. It looks like we can't win, so I give up. That's number one. They give up. Number two, some lash out and hurt their own reputation. I find those are the major two ways. If it looks like your opposition is going to win, you might just reach out and slap your opposition. And guess what? That only makes you look bad. When you do that, your opposition wins. You don't win for doing that, right? Kids in school, 
The, the first, the bully is always really tricky and picks on you. And then you, in your emotional state, aren't so savvy. And you reach out and you touch somebody. And the, the teacher always sees you. And that's bad for you. If you lash out, that only hurts your own reputation. So don't lash out. That's a huge mistake. And don't give up. That's the other mistake that people make. Here is what you should do. Here it is. Remember, God gave you the vision. Remember, God gave you the vision. When these times are tough, when it looks like it's over, it is time to do some introspection and it is time for you to remember a few things. Remember, we built an altar. Remember, we built a foundation. Remember, we decided that this was the work that we ought to do. Remember that God led you to do this work. Do not forget it was God who led you every step of the way. Israel, don't forget you were exiled hopelessly in a land, but God brought you out of it. Remember. And remember, it had been so long since you had an altar. But the moment you built it, God met you there. And remember all the promises that God gave to Abraham, that God gave to David. Remember all the promises that he gave that he was going to come through for you. You got to remember. Remember that God gave the vision. God gave the vision. but. It sure looks like it'll never come to pass. God had given the command that there should be a temple in Jerusalem. Absolutely. Can't, can't deny God commanded that should happen. But now it looked impossible. I want to give you the timeline of a vision. While you're remembering that there is a vision, let me give you the timeline of a vision. This is how it works. I want to give you an important piece of information Called the timeline of a vision. Number one, step one, the vision is born. The vision is born. If you have a, a, a vision born, if it's a beautiful thing. God has given the vision. He has given the mission or the command. This is where it gets really exciting. This is where you can't wait to tell somebody, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I've got this in my heart to start this. I want to start a business. I think I'm going to go to school to do this. I think I'm going to start a church. I think I'm going to do these things. And they're exciting because visions are exciting. And the purpose of God and the dreams of God are exciting. Step one is the vision is born. And at this time, everybody's like, good for you, kiddo. Way to go. Nobody's like, you stupid dummy. Most people are like, that's really cool. I want God to talk to me like that. Please tell me more. That's step one vision is born. Step two, someone works the vision. So they set out to fulfill the vision that God has given them. They go ahead and they start looking around for for storefronts to rent for their business. And they start going to talk to the government for how they can set up a a, a business. And they go and they go uh, try to get into the school and they go they go and try to do these. They start to work the plan. Right, They have the vision, now they're working the plan. And this is exciting because every day you can see one thing after another off of a checklist. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is actually happening. What a wonderful thing. Have you ever been in that stage? It's a wonderful stage to be in. It is such an exciting place to be. But then there's a third step. And this is an important step in the life of every Christian. Here it is. Step three, the vision dies the vision fails and it dies it doesn't die a little bit just like there's no kind of friends there's no kind of dead things that are dead they are dead this is step three it's the way visions work step three is you tried your best and it's still not enough step three is you tried 
and you failed miserably. Step three is it doesn't turn out like you thought it would turn out. That is step three. Don't be surprised by step three. Step three is a thing. It's real. Anybody experience step three? As hard as they try, it's not enough. As much effort, time, and heart as they put into what God has called them to do, it is not enough. The project comes to a standstill. The project stops. Sound familiar? Sound like Ezra 4? The project comes to an end before it was really completed. They fail miserably. And the vision dies. Step three. Praise the Lord, everyone. But remember, who gave the vision? This is why it's important to be a person of prayer. To be a person in your Bible. To be a person that talks to the Lord and hears from the Lord. And sets out after hearing from the Lord to do things. Not setting out before and then afterwards asking God to do things. God gave the vision. When God gives a vision, step three is absolutely necessary. Now stick with me. Step three is necessary when God gives a vision. Because there is a step four. Step four is this. God supernaturally resurrects the vision and brings it to pass. There is a step three and it is brutal. There is a step three, and it might keep you up at night. There is a step three that will make you cry. There is a step four when God gives the vision. Check your Bible, and you will see this pattern show up everywhere in your Bible. Everywhere in your Bible. Abraham is given a vision, isn't he? To be the father of a great nation. And to have a promised land for all of his children. And so you know what he does? He goes, yes God, absolutely. I'm taking this vision. And I'm going to walk. And everywhere I walk, I'm going to claim the land. I'm going to work the vision. I'm going to believe the vision. I'm going to try the vision. And guess what? He fails miserably. Because he can't even have a child. He tries to fulfill the vision, and he can't. The vision just dies right there in his hands. He is now an old man. They are, he and Sarah are both past their 90s. They can't possibly have a baby anymore. He fails because he can't fulfill the vision and have a son. But God comes back with step four. And God resurrects supernaturally the vision. And out of nowhere, a miracle happens. And Isaac is born when Sarah and Abraham are old in their age. Is that in your Bible? Yeah, but that's the only place that happens, right? Oh, no. Let's see. David, a little shepherd boy, is given the vision... And he is anointed king one day. He didn't even know it was happening. And Samuel comes to his house. And there's this whole funny story. But the, the long, the short of it is he gets anointed king. Nobody even knew who this kid was. God has him anointed that day. And so David, what does he do? He just lives for God. And he works that vision. And he, he believes he is called to do great things and he is not afraid to face the giant because he's walking out in his vision he's working the vision and he takes care of all the sheep and he does a good job and he sings songs to the lord and he play praises god and he he honors his father and he honors his king and he honors god and all things what does he do he's working the vision he's working the vision because this vision so wonderful but then there's a huge problem there's already a king and you can't be a king if there's already a king. And if that king's not your dad, especially you can't be that king. Because the next king's going to be that king's son. And you are not his son. He fails. 
David has this vision. He works it. He believes it. He praises God for it. But it dies in his own hands. Another man named Saul is the king and he stands in the way. And there's this moment where Saul dies. And it had to be, David went, well, here it is. This is the moment. Saul's dead. I'm going to be the next king of Israel. This, God, let me tell you how your plan works. This is the moment it's going to work. You ever try to tell God that? How'd that work out for you? It doesn't work that way. It does. I, I fall for it every time. Honestly, it does not work. He, he had to think Saul's dead. So now, of course, God, this is the time. Everybody's going to crown me king. Now, it's always, a, it's always a trick question. I always like to ask it. Who is the second king of Israel? If Saul is the first one, who is the second one? No one can tell you. No one can tell you. Everybody will say David. It was not David. When Saul dies, his son Ishbosheth. One of those minor names in the Bible. You don't even know that name. Ishbosheth. It's, it's one of those Bible trivia questions that stump everybody. Ishbosheth is the second king. Of Israel. So now Saul's out of the way. But sure enough. Someone else is in that spot. And David knows. It's hopeless. This can't be. It can't be fulfilled. It now seems impossible. For that vision to come to pass. But what does God do? He's got a step for. God supernaturally does. What David could never do. And David becomes. King. Not long after. Ishbosheth is named king of Israel. David becomes that king of Israel because God has a step four where he takes what you couldn't do and he miraculously does it under his own power. On and on, this story repeats over and over in the Bible. But none greater than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was sent to the world to save it. And everybody heard him went, there is something about this guy. This is the son of God. This is the Messiah. This guy heals lepers. This guy has wisdom and truth and authority that we've never seen before. This is the guy we have waited for. In fact, people didn't understand the vision completely. So they're like, you just tell us when and we're going to be in your army, Jesus, and we'll kill them all. I'm like, what? That's what they were thinking because they had this picture of a vision. This is the guy. This is the rightful king of Israel. This is the one who sit upon the throne of David. This is the one that will put everything right. They were not wrong. But everyone loses hope. When Jesus Christ is seen hanging on a cross and he breathes, up, he breathes his last and his head falls and he dies. And every one of those disciples ran. Every one of those disciples hid. And this Jesus even told them on the third day, I'm going to rise again. It wasn't a mistake. You read it all the time in the New Testament, in the Gospels. He said, I will die, but I will rise again on the third day. Guess what? None of them believed it. None of them went and had a coronation ceremony on that Easter Sunday morning. Not one of them. Some women came, but they didn't come to see a live guy. They came to prepare a dead body. It was over. We tried to work the vision, but the vision died. The Messiah died. But there is a step four. Because God gave the vision, God is able to pick that vision up. Breathe life back into it. And yet it lives. And Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And now he lives forever. And that's the thing. When Jesus. When a vision is resurrected by God. It not only lives. It lives forever. Because God promises are forever. Somebody say Jesus is alive. The vision is resurrected. No matter the opposition. God can resurrect the vision. 
It doesn't matter what the enemy looks like. It doesn't matter who they wrote a letter to. It doesn't matter what has now come upon you. God can handle your opposition. And God can resurrect the vision. Yes, he can. God gives the vision. God gives the vision. If God has given you a vision, you better hold on to that. And you better be full of faith to say, God gave me this vision. God had given Israel the vision to build a temple. They worked to fulfill the vision. They had now failed and the temple stood unfinished under the orders of the biggest and strongest nation on the earth, Persia. The bad news is you're in step three. The step where the vision dies. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, you always come short, up short. That's the bad news, but there is good news. The good news is God has a step four. God has a step four. And in step four, God is about to resurrect the vision and bring it. To pass. Are you ready for that part of the story? They write, the Jews, they write a a letter that reaches Xerxes' father. So they don't even talk to Xerxes, they talk to Xerxes' daddy, Darius. And they remind him of the vision. They remind him of the promise given by the previous king, Cyrus. Darius in Ezra chapter 6 declares... He declares as a royal king. He declares that the royal treasury should pay for all the temple materials. He declares that the opposition, the rulers of the surrounding areas have to stay away. That no one should stand in the way of the temple being built. What happened right there? Some step four happened right there. That's what happened. God did this. God resurrected the vision. The very kingdom which ordered the standstill of the project. When God has resurrected that vision. Now that very kingdom is paying for the project. That very kingdom is now defending Israel from their enemies. That's impossible That's a miracle. That is a vision that had died, but now resurrected. You got to face your opposition first. What are you struggling with today? What's standing in your way? Keeping you from seeing the vision God gave you. And seeing it come to pass. Do you have in your hands a dead dream? It's a very sad thing. To have a dead dream on your hands. Are you holding a vision that once seemed possible. But now you're at a place where you think it is impossible. I know what that feels like. I fell in love in 2007. With a girl sitting outside a taco diner. In Plano, Texas. Very holy spot taco diner. This girl was wearing pink shoes and I came up to her and I said something really smooth and charming. So smooth and charming, yet no one remembers what it is anymore. So there's no need to, to say what it was. It was just one for the, for the ages. Just kidding. Seriously, though, I said really, really suavely. I said, wow, those are some pink shoes. It's my first words to my wife. I had no idea what to say. I was completely out of my league in every way. I still am. I would say anything to strike up a conversation. I'm just glad I got shoes and the color of them correct. But I met this girl and upon getting to know this girl, I received a vision. I received a vision that I wanted to marry this girl. I wanted to live life with this girl. I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, girl, with this girl. And whatever it is that God had for us. I wanted us to do it together. I, I wanted us to have a family together. And it became apparent that she felt the same way as well. Everything is wonderful. I've had the vision. We're working the vision. But there's a step three coming. 
there was a problem, and it was a big problem. It was a problem that no matter how hard we worked at it, we couldn't fix this problem. Here was it. Sarah had severe epilepsy, and she had grand mal seizures. And she told me that she would spend most of her life not being able to drive a car. And that she would rely on expensive medications that would leave her not feeling like herself. And that she leveled with me, and this was the hardest one. She looked me in the eyes. I could take you to the exact place where she told me these things. She leveled with me and told me that the doctors had told her she could never bring a child to term because of these grandma seizures. She would never be able to have children. Poof. The vision died. The vision we had, gone. Nothing we could do about it. And as much as I love this girl, I could not fix her problem. I could not heal her. I could not do it. And if we wanted to have children, that part of that vision was completely dead. I was sitting in a Stonebriar mall when the vision died. You receive the vision, you work the vision, the vision dies. But then one night, I was out of town at a church conference in Austin, Texas. And on a Wednesday night, Sarah came to a prayer meeting. And while she was at a prayer meeting, she fell to the ground with a grand mal seizure. And the people of that church, this church, Redemption Church, they gathered around her as she laid there in that altar. And those people began to pray for Jesus Christ to heal them. I wasn't even there. But on that night, the Lord Jesus Christ showed us a step forward. And she has been healed ever since that moment in 2007. She has never had another seizure. We have three beautiful boys. She drives herself to work every day. She takes no medication. We've been cleared medically. They have no idea how it happened. But we know God resurrects the vision. God has a step forward. God has a step forward. It seemed impossible. But if God gives the vision, you better know he can resurrect the vision. When Jesus Christ was in the grave, God's plan didn't die. God is able to do what no one else can. What do you need God to do for you today? What is it that's dead? If you've got a dead vision in your life, I know that's really hard. If you've got a dead dream in your hands, I understand how difficult that is. But can I tell you, you can receive a step for today. That today could be the last time you hold a dead thing in your hands and you could have a thing that is alive forever in your hands if you turn it over to the Lord today. I know you're facing opposition, but you need to know what the Bible says. Isaiah 54 and 17, it says, no weapon. Somebody say no weapon. Forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. It goes on. This is the part that's never quoted. But you are different. You should quote it. This is the heritage. (laughs) This is what belongs. This is what the master has given to the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication from me, says the Lord. 1 John 4, 4 says this. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
I want to tell you there is something greater in you, and it is the Lord. There is a vision in you, and even if it's not breathing, it is from the Lord. And God wants to give you a step toward. You receive a vision. Maybe somebody in this place, you're like, I have never received a vision from the Lord. You can receive it today. You can receive a dream from the Lord today. We're about to open this for a time of prayer. I want to... For more information about redemption, look us up online at redemption-church.com. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or even our anonymous question text line at 214-856-0550. Thank you for joining us, and have a blessed day.